Welcome to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. We're back for another episode of The Kingdom, a Saluna podcast. This season, we'll be focusing on all things renewable energy, featuring experts from across the globe, as well as insights from Saluna's distinguished leadership team. I'm your host, John Belazer, CEO of Saluna. On this podcast, I'm joined by Philip, Saluna's Vice President of Corporate Development, and Rob Gromlich, CEO of Grid Strategies. We're really excited to jump into a rich conversation with Rob. He has extensive experience in the renewable energy space where he provides economic policy advice in power markets with a commitment to sustainability. Together, we take a deep dive into renewable energy. We discuss its history, both as an industry and its resources, and we also talk about where it is currently. But perhaps more importantly, we take all this into consideration to address the future. What will it take to become 100% renewable? Let's find out. Welcome to the show, gents. Phil, always a pleasure to have you. Hi, John. And Rob, nice to have you with us as well. And welcome to the Kingdom Podcast. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. So, Rob, you just came back from a, a vacation. Curious, was it a proper vacation or a staycation? I'm always curious what people are doing these days, given this global pandemic that's taking place. Well, it's all relative these days, isn't it? Uh, we, we do have broadband uh, up where we go at uh, Deep Creek Lake in Western Maryland, um, but it's nice and cool up there. And we got some lake uh, uh, family play and, uh, you know, quarantined as a family together up there for a bit. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. I mean, I heard a lot of people going camping and people sort of escaping to the woods, if you will. The problem with that is that everybody has the same idea. <laughs> right. And I was just on a call uh, earlier where folks were up in the uh, Adirondacks and they're saying that, you know, the woods are, are quite crowded up there. So it kind of defeats the purpose of it, doesn't it? Yeah. I know. I'd like to trail run and, and some of these trails on the weekends. I, I, I just have to stay away. I have to alter my schedule. Yes, for sure. For sure. So, Rob, we're going to cover a lot of things today. The main topic for our podcast today is really about thinking and imagining 100% renewable energy and what that might look like here in the States and beyond. And we're certainly going to get into that topic quite deeply, given your experience. But before we do, we'd love to know a bit more about you and your background. And so to start, I always ask people how they got into renewable energy, because, you know, I sort of stumbled my way in. How did you get into the business? Yeah, I'm one of those people who has actually been doing electricity work for my entire career and really started in middle school with a paper I did on acid rain. And my my aunt made me uh, send my paper into my congressman, who was John Dingle. Uh, and that's how I got into the policy side of it, or at least started thinking wow. about it. <laughs> uh, and then later in college, every time I had a, a research project, I would uh, work on this. And my senior economics thesis was actually on um, New England uh, power system operation and um, energy uh, reducing emissions from the dispatch. So <laughs> I've been doing this embarrassingly long. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's amazing. And you said you're in the policy space. Were you in a specific organization or department or working with a congressperson? Tell us about that. Kind of take us through your career until grid strategies, perhaps. Yeah, right out of college, I went to Washington, worked for the World Resources Institute and wrote a paper on carbon taxes um, and did various other research projects. Then um, mm -hmm. that was a couple of years. Actually, um, uh, one of the assignments was to be a fact checker on a what they call the World Resources Report, and there's a climate chapter, and it was a, f a first, I think, special issue on climate change. And so hmm. I got a you know deep exposure right out of college in you know the top climate scientists because I was calling them up and saying, "Is this an accurate representation of your work, or is this right or that?" So I actually, I was totally sold and concerned about climate in 1991. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, that only kind of reinforced my interest in in electricity, given the significant role electricity plays in um, greenhouse gas emissions, as well as what I had already been working on, which was acid rain at that time. So then I, I went to graduate school. I went to uh, UC Berkeley, which was very good on energy, still is. Um, it's kind of a hub of electricity policy, markets, design, all of that. And a 
I had classmates and professors. John Holdren was a professor um, who was influential. And uh, Ryan Weiser was a fellow student who was telling me a lot about renewable energy at that time and how it was really becoming real. And so I started looking at that more. Uh, and then what was actually happening in the world at that time was uh, the introduction of markets for electricity. And so I got interested in that partly as a way that consumers could choose their power sources. I had grown up in Michigan near coal plants and, uh, you know, with asthma as a kid, that's part of why I, you know, wrote that paper on acid rain. Hmm. Uh, it always bothered me that we had to just take the power that the utility was was offering and you couldn't choose. So California was restructuring in the early and mid 90s to allow consumer choice. Uh, so I was interested in that. And then Another mentor along the way, uh, Ralph Cavana with NRDC, uh, told us graduate students in that program in 1995 that a lot of the action was going to be at this little-known agency in Washington called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. And so um, I went to uh, work at, at FERC in 95, ended up working there for two separate four-year stints, and I've been kind of working in and around FERC and federal energy policy ever since. Wow. Amazing. I, I'm always fascinated by how people's journeys, you know, lead them to their career choice. And it sounds like yours started with, you know, sort of your experience with electricity and energy and how it, it affected you, your health, interestingly enough, and then sort of serendipitously was guided through through your studies to to the space. And so somewhere along the four, two, four-year stints, you took a sabbatical, as I understand it. Was that, that, that was at FERC, right? Uh, that was actually at AWEA, the American Wind Energy Association, which is where mm -hmm. I went right after FERC. And Tell the, us about that. Yeah, uh, sure. I worked at AWEA for 12 years, and um, uh, the sabbatical was an interesting program. It still exists at AWEA. Um, actually, Tom Kiernan, the current CEO, um, brought that in along with a number of other changes. He had had experience with it at his um, work, the organization he ran prior to coming to AWEA. And uh, it's for employees who'd been there for 10 years, which I had back in 2016. And uh, I was interested in doing that. Um, uh and uh, exploring some new aspects of renewable energy and energy use and economic development. So I went to East Africa, Tanzania specifically, and some little time in Kenya to just kind of take some time and explore renewable energy. So I, I set up interviews. I felt like Mr. Rogers, you know, how he goes around, <laughs> you know, asks yeah. all these people questions and, you know, yeah. stuff out. That's kind of what I was. I, I got, I had some speaking engagements uh, and some semi-official things. And there was a wind developer who I knew who was active there. I did a little work, not really work, kind of volunteer stuff, but uh, mostly mm -hmm. just going around talking to people and learning. And it was really an uh, interesting experience, um, mm. uh, you know, partly because, you know, these were, that region has three of the countries in the bottom five of the energy poverty index. Um, right. And yet they were equally interested in large scale wind and solar projects. There's, they were still willing to pay 10 cents a kilowatt hour for the, you know, full generation transmission, you know, service to get renewable energy power, partly because, you know, that's just the global price for a system and serving consumers. And they all really wanted electricity. It was a very popular campaign topic for anybody running for office there to provide mm -hmm. electricity more, more and more people. And, you know, uh, they had domestic renewable resources and they wanted to, wanted to use it. So that was kind of interesting. And then of course it's different there. There's a lot of places that are very far from the main grid so they could do off grid solutions, uh, which is of course very different from here, but it was interesting to see that. Yeah. You know, th there's this, um, ubiquitous, narrative right around the continent i mean it's not narrative it's true right you've got over a billion people without you know consistent access to power and you know i'd imagine sort of being there you saw why that was such a you know big need what, what would you what would you say is your biggest takeaway for first of all why that's true why these countries are in 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 the energy poverty zone if you will and what was your biggest takeaway for sort of what it would take to reverse that 
any thoughts from that sabbatical? Yeah, well, uh, again, it was interesting how popular electricity was, uh, not just for the standard uses of, you know, lighting and cell phone charging and TVs and the eventually refrigeration for those who can afford that. But like, you know, any issue you talk about there, whether it's healthcare, well, guess what you need for good healthcare? You need electricity or, you know, education. Right. Guess what you need for a good school? Electricity. Right. You need so power. Exactly. It, it just, you know, it was, to me, it was like, really reinforcing about the importance of what all of us do, which we usually take for granted here in the U.S., but you right. really see the, the value to people li people's lives of electricity is, you know, as much of the day as they can, they can get it. Right. That's a very good point. We do take it for granted, even though we have our own challenges, as we'll talk about, you know, we never imagined that not having access to that basic in piece of infrastructure, right? It'd be like saying, you know, you don't have drinking water, right? It, it's a big difference between the two worlds. And so it's interesting that you went and experienced it firsthand and it allowed you to find more passion in what you were doing because it was so important for sure. I can see that. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, turning to other parts of our conversation, I'm sure is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, guess, guess where the wind and solar resources were, you know, far from the right. population centers. So, exactly. you know, and guess how they operated, you know, vari variably, uh, right? Mm -hmm. They had, different resources in different places. Um, sometimes the wind was blowing here and not there and, you know, the sun was shining here or it's cloudy over there. And so, you know, you know, here I was, it couldn't have felt farther from, you know, Bethesda, Maryland to be in Arusha, right. Tanzania. And the people I was talking to were, were talking about the literally the same exact physical and economic issues that I deal with every day, which is remote and variable resources. And how do you connect them on the grid and serve people. So interesting. And the other question I have is, you know, with certain infrastructure opportunities in countries, we found with certain things like the cell phone industry or perhaps internet in some places, there's this kind of a leapfrog that takes place, right? Where you don't go to legacy technology, you just sort of jump to, you know, the latest opportunity. And do you think that the focus on renewable resources was more of a leapfrog thing or is just that they realize that they have these incredible assets, you know, environmental assets that can be used to generate power? There is some of that. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think the advantage of renewables in countries like that is, A, they're, they're very scalable, right? So you don't have to bet the whole utility on a, you know, a large 500 megawatt conventional power plant, whether it's coal or nuclear or something like that. There's I don't know if there's any nuclear in the whole continent for that reason. Such a huge cost commitment. Um, whereas, you know, you can build a two megawatt wind farm if you want or, a, you know, yeah. 500 kilowatt solar farm. Pretty quickly, yeah. You can, you know, basically pay for as much as, you know, whatever money you have available, you can put to use and build as much as you need. You know, they have very serious issues with credit worthiness of their utilities, right? Uh, the utility is, is always a, uh, a source of uh, funds for the, you know, for the, for the governments. And uh, they're, you know, they're always coming up short on their uh, collection of, you know, revenues from, uh, from ratepayers. Um, right, right. So it's a constant struggle, which makes investment from, you know, international lenders very difficult. They do have a at least in East Africa, many of the countries have very good wind and solar resources. I mean, the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the capacity factors, uh, and I know right. your company has experience with, with this, uh, you know, yes. times 70% yeah. both capacity factor and capacity value, meaning the, meaning the coincidence with load in the, you know, afternoon into evening was, was uh, almost perfect. So, um, you know, incredible resource. And so, you know, the economics were were great. Uh, it, it's just, again, you know, uh, they, they had, uh, they had grid issues and, you know, making that work with remote and variable resources was just as much a challenge for them as it is here. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to, to Africa. Uh, Phil did an incredible interview with, with an investment bank that focuses on the region and thought it was sort of fascinating insights around why more projects aren't happening there and why infrastructure development isn't taking place. And, it kind of is germane to the approach that we're taking. So we'll come back to that. Before we transition on, tell us a bit more about Good Strategies, your current business, and what you're focusing 
on as a company? Sure. We started in 2017. It was just me, then the partner, Michael Goggin, uh, who's uh, mm-hmm. currently, um, you know, the two of us partners, the vice president, and we have a third, Jesse Schneider. And then we have a number of kind of different contractors or other consultants with whom we partner. We were really uh, looking at this growing need, thinking that, you know, renewable energy is definitely going to grow, needs to grow. The biggest barrier is the grid, both sort of power markets and the infrastructure and operations of the physical network. And, you know, sensing that people had questions about how to how to do that. And that was, to me, the most interesting area of policy that um, I had been working on in my 12 years at the Wind Association, AWEA, and, uh, and also um, at FERC and one of the grid operators, PJM, where I worked a while back. Uh, and so I just really wanted to focus on that issue full time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, happily, the, the, uh, the, you know, the result was a lot of other people are interested in that, too. And our clients have been foundations who want to do something about climate and are trying to figure out what to do about the grid or Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have been states who are trying to figure out what they do to achieve their clean energy goals, uh, national labs. AWEA remains a, a client from the, from the start um, and other renewable associations and companies, uh, as well as some renewable energy buyers in the mix. So it's been a, a diverse mix over the last uh, f- few years. And then uh, I, I serve part-time Grid Strategies supports two, um, two coalitions. One's called Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, which is more mostly focused on kind of grid expansion out to resource areas. And then uh, uh, the Watt Coalition is working for advanced transmission technologies, which, which is more focused on the operations of the grid to squeeze more out of the existing system with new technologies. Fantastic. What I was queuing the transition to earlier before I asked you about grid strategies was just sort of the business of the grid. I just finished a book called The Grid, actually, that really takes you through the whole history of how the, the U.S. grid started and the business of energy started and, and how there was this sort of instrumental point under the Carter administration where everything changed. Could you walk us through that that history a bit for, for the listeners? It is a very kind of complicated and unusual industry in terms of the, the structure. Uh, I think the easiest way to summarize it is that basically it grew up at, with a local utility company serving local end users with local generation, and they built their transmission and distribution to connect that relatively local generation with their, with their load. So mm-hmm. basically had all these kind of vertical silos all around the country. So hundreds of little silos. And then it was only over time that the connections between them, the horizontal grid connections between them evolved. Um, and, uh, and we're still, I think, in that evolutionary process of increasing regionalization with infrastructure and regional markets mm. to get to what's really more of a, almost a national grid. And, um, you know, that's, a, that's an important historical factor because if you think about how to actually run a power system with very high renewable penetration, it's much more efficient to integrate across a large region because you have different resources operating at different times of day and, uh, right. you know, you can get an overall firmer supply. I know what your company is doing is a, a new twist on dealing with that same issue, a, a really interesting innovation. But, you know, barring other companies who are able to kind of match load and generation, and we should talk about that, but, um, you know, barring, mm-hmm. barring that, basically we've got, you know, the load is where it is and the generation is scattered all over. And so we need to kind of operate as these regional power pools. And that's, you know, what we've been trying to add over the last 10 or 20 years, but it's not how the industry started. So the equivalent would be you know, the way the, the the country had these sort of local state routes and highway systems, right? Mm-hmm. You know, getting across countries meant you, you would go from one system to another and, and the quality was very different as you went along. And then eventually, I guess it was, you know, at post-World War II, we developed and implemented a national interstate highway system that 
gives you, you know, the ability to move across the country fairly easily. Are you talking about sort of the concept from a grid perspective to create something like, ideally, it would be to create sort of a national grid that's fully connected, has all the right size pipes, if you will, and smart enough to connect, you know, load to generation? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think we need that for the for the long-term uh, grid and to meet some of these ambitious targets. Um, Joe Biden just came out with very ambitious 2035 targets and, you know, he's talking about transmission. So, you know, maybe he'll be the, the Eisenhower of transmission. That's right. But, that's right. You know, Eisenhower that did the... Yeah, but, so, you know, somebody needs to, to play that role because we really do need it to physically make the system work. And, and uh, we actually started a, a macro grid initiative, we call it, between Americans for Clean Energy Grid and, and ACOR, American Council on Renewable Energy, to, um, you know, share information with people about the need for that and the benefits of it and try to increase support for that type of grid. So, um, you know, that's that's one of the pieces, I think, of the of the overall climate puzzle. And Rob, just staying on the on the business of the grid, for a second, you know, as that evolution took place, you had sort of these regional, you know, constructs and it's still fairly regional, as you said, you know, re regional power pools. What about the business of the grid when it was fully integrated, you know, a grid op a grid company, if you will, a, whether it was regional or super regional, pretty much controlled everything, right? They had the ability to develop the power plants, move the power to where the load was and then decide how much to charge and all of that kind of stuff. And it was a very nice integrated business, I would imagine. What does it look like today and what, what caused the change? That's right. It started out with those vertically integrated, basically monopoly companies. They were regulated monopolies and, you know, there was a conscious decision to give them a monopoly franchise and then regulate their rates so they wouldn't charge uh, and, you know, earn monopoly profits. So that's kind of the history of the industry, which is why we have all these regulatory agencies across uh, in every state and at FERC um, in, uh, you know, for the, for in Washington. Um, but, you know, now there's a lot of places where it's a much more competitive structure. You still have pieces of the industry that are monopolies. So transmission and distribution are basically one company in a given region. Um, but the generation might be, you know, dozens of different companies and even the load serving function um, in terms of selling electricity service, that might be dozens of competitive retail suppliers. So Texas is probably closest to that um, much more competitive, uh, decentralized market structure um, with generation and retail service uh, um deregulated, I'll say, although there's still regulations, but, you know, move, those are now competitive. And then there's, you know, the mon monopoly wires are all that's left for the utilities. Um, but other than Texas, there's kind of a continuum and a pretty big patchwork. So every region's a little bit different on that continuum between full vertically integrated monopoly and, and competitive. And as a result, it kind of makes it more challenging when you start to change the mixture of the type of energy. And, and then you have problems that could be solved through, you know, cross-border or multi-regional coordination that becomes challenging, I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. Uh, regional transmission organizations are, are an important part of the new industry structure. They're about 20 years old and they are, serve as kind of the air traffic controller across a region. Mm -hmm. And we have them in about seven different regions in the U.S. covering about two-thirds of the, of the country. So they, they enable that coordination more across states. And they're, they're usually able to accommodate different resource preferences. You know, some states have ambitious clean energy goals and others don't. Um, right. There's a lot of different, you know, resource mixes across a regional footprint. But they usually try to just stick to their, you know, air traffic controller function of operating the day-to-day -day markets. And then they, somewhat separate from that operational function, they also plan the transmission system. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're they're increasing the regionalization, both of the markets, but also the, the, uh, the regional infrastructure. So that's an important way. I, I'm a big fan of RTOs. Uh, to me, it's a very important way to uh, kind of get that coordination and regional operation. Very interesting. Phil and I have been conducting this research exercise, if you will, over the last, I'd say, month and a half. We've been 
looking at ways to bring our dispatchable compute model to the U.S. and look to solve for some of the challenges that are sort of brewing or have been brewing for some time as more renewable energy comes online, especially in those states that you mentioned that have big ambitious plans and or have had for some time ever since, uh, I guess, PURPA was introduced. And that was that pivotal law framework, I guess, that sort of changed everything right under Carter. And what I want to do is turn it over to Phil here, who's going to kind of walk through what we've learned, just fascinating conversations with all sorts of people, some of whom you've introduced us to. So that 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 was very helpful. Thank you. And just insightful things we're learning and, and definitely want to get your thoughts because you obviously see this uh, in your practice. Phil? Yeah. Thanks, uh, John. I, I'm happy to set it up here. I mean, I think it's stepping back from my perspective, um, the biggest challenge is, and Robert, I'm very interested in getting your thoughts on this, that a the grids are facing right now, especially as more green electricity moves on, is the problem of matching supply and demand. I mean, I think, uh, and and then the follow-on effects of that as, uh, you know, maybe it's it's harder to send the right price signals to the right market participants to get the demand and supply that you want. I think that's the, in my, from what I've learned in our research, that's the central problem that many uh, grid operators uh, are having. What would you, what would you say to that, Rob? I mean, a grid operator has to keep supply and demand exactly equal 24 hours a day all through the year. And so, I mean, you can look at that as a challenge or an opportunity. If you can get the demand side activated to not just be you know, a dumb resource that's taking power um, without any information and just whenever, anytime is as good as any other, then uh, you have to do certain things on the supply side. And, uh, you know, that's how the system has historically operated. But if you can bring in active demand side participation to say, oh, wait, the system is kind of scarce right now, um, and that's sending the spot market prices really high. Why don't I hold back on my consumption for the time being for a few hours or day or two uh, and and then turn back on when the price gets lower? Um, that is an incredible source of overall efficiency. So there's a, a lot of money left on the table currently all over the country. And there's a variety of reasons why we don't do that. It's just not historically how the system operated, um, you know, utilities didn't really have an incentive to, you know, improve it. Uh, you could, you know, there's, you know, the rate design to the retail customers generally don't reflect those supply and demand conditions. There's a, there's a whole bunch of, you know, reasons for why it is that way. But if, if, uh, if we can crack that nut of, um, you know, matching supply and demand much better and activating the demand side, then A, we'll have a much more efficient system that consumers will benefit from and, and B, we'll be able to integrate a heck of a lot more renewable energy um, So because the variability can be absorbed by that demand side buffer. Hmm. For our listeners here, and as I think through that, I mean, uh, the simple model that's been very helpful for me to think about electricity markets is your grid is essentially, it's like a, a, syst- a fluid system. So you've got a pipe and it's mm-hmm. filled with, instead of water, it's filled with electricity. The power producers are putting water into the system and the, the customers are taking water out of the system. And if you put too much in, the pipes will burst. Or if you put too little in, they might collapse. And that's sort of the job of the grid operator. And we take for granted, perhaps, how complicated that actually is because we always have electricity. And now, I guess... As a follow-on, just as we are building our mental model here, my questions would be, number one, can you just help our, our listeners understand what has changed with the emergence of renewable energy um, in terms of in that system and the variability of renewable energy assets? Um, so that's number one. And then number two, moving over towards the demand side, you know, how are utilities um, addressing that demand side problem, if you could help us kind of build a market map for the different ways you can solve that problem, that would be really helpful. 
So um, I think through the experiences with high renewable penetration in certain areas, as well as studies of the same, um, you you, uh, you you find that uh, you know to get reliable and, and efficient electricity, you you need three things, three kind of changes to how we've been operating. Number one is you generally need more infrastructure to deliver the remote resources and to kind of allow the balancing to take place across the regional area. You need to operate the grid more efficiently because uh, we actually don't utilize the network very efficiently at all. And there are new technologies, dynamic line ratings, power flow control, topology optimization, and other things that can operate the existing network more efficiently. Um, and then just large regional operation, the RTOs help with that. So you operate as a, as a power market. Um, those things all help a lot and handle the, you know, the remoteness and the variability and, and lead to a, an efficient um, system. Now, um, uh, the, the more we can bring, and you know, that's gotten us uh, this far, I don't know, for it 15% penetration or somewhere in the teens, but you know, we're getting, uh, we've gotten pretty far along, but as we go, um, go further, we're, you know, we're really going to need to bring in the demand side and any other sources of flexibility. So storage, uh, is going to be really important. Um, you know, basically any way to help kind of balance out that, um, that supply using your pipe analogy. Um, you know, you, you got to make sure that there are active entities on both ends of the pipe, uh, adjusting, you know, the, the input and output to keep everything in balance. Got it. Because John jumping in. So be, because before when the resource, the generation resource wasn't renewable and it was, you know, like a coal, coal plant or something like that, was it easier to balance the two sides? Yeah, I, I think it was. I mean, load shapes were predictable. They'd start low in the morning, rise up in the middle of the day, and then decline at night. And so you'd take your, you know, your your base load would be operating, and then you, when load increased, you add your intermediate, and then your peaking units. And that was kind of, you know, that's what grid operators came in every morning and and did the same thing for, you know, fifty, eighty years. Um, and, but now, right. you know, you look at the power system, and you, um, you know, it's not. It's not better or worse or necessarily harder. Like if we had been born into a world that was operating on, you know, wind and solar, we would just think it'd be the most natural thing to do to, you know, maximize wind and solar um, and then just fill in the gaps. You know, sometimes a two hour gap, sometimes a two day gap with other resources and that, you know, those other resources, those could be demand side flexibility. You know, they could be a gas plant that's just very low capacity factor. You just dispatch it when you need it um, or some other resource like that to, to fill the gaps. And it's, you know, as an engineering matter, it's it's really not complicated, but it is very different. And, of course, all of our software and power systems and protocols and market rules and you name it, um, business models and contracts and, and everything throughout the electric industry are kind of based on the old way and they need to evolve to the new way. So just to, I guess, recap or uh, make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying here. Essentially, in the past, um, we had a system where you would let demand do what it was going to do and it would respond to price and other factor inputs to make a decision on when they were going to turn on electricity and then you could uh, pretty much plan your power production um, to meet that demand. And now, perhaps uh, due to the variability of, of renewable resources, which generate electricity when it's sunny or when it's windy, we sort of lost control over that supply side of the equation, or we're not as in control as we once were. Um, and so now we have to look at changing the rules for demand so it so the the demand side the consumer side of the equation can be more responsive to the power production resources is that sort of a yeah yep, exactly we, we always used to dispatch supply to meet demand in the future we will much more often be dispatching demand to meet supply whatever that supply mm -hmm. is you know whatever the the wind and the sun give us 
will match uh, that and fill in the gaps. And so now, from what I understood that you said, I think what we all know, or what is a pretty clear secular trend is a lot of states, especially blue states, are setting ambitious renewable targets for themselves. They want to be 50% renewable. They want to be 100% renewable, depending on where you see, see where you are across the country. And I guess what you what you had just mentioned is in some parts of the grid, in some parts of the country, you know, the penetration of renewables might be as high as the teens, which is to say that we've got to go a pretty long way to getting to a quote unquote green or fully renewable grid. Is that sort of the 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 challenge? Is that an accurate accurate representation of the challenge? Yeah, that's right. Well, we've we've got a long way to go, um, and we also have some, uh, you know, some areas where renewable development's going strong, but the grid isn't keeping up. Um, so what happens is projects there get uh, curtailed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's literally not enough transmission capacity to deliver it out of uh, a resource area, then it's just, it's basically shut in and they, they, they're essentially spilling wind or solar power. They're, they're curtailing the output. So, um, we do have some areas like that of, of mismatches. Um, and you know, we do have, as you said, uh, I don't know, about 30 states that have significant renewable portfolio standards. Almost, a, almost 20 states have, are looking at a hundred percent clean energy, mm-hmm. um, and as as goals so that you know they're moving dramatically and even more individual utilities have their own goals so we're there's no question we're moving dramatically in that direction um sometimes the development is in places like say kansas and nebraska which they don't have the clean energy goals but they just have an excellent resource and so Mm -hmm. the the resource tends to be spread across uh, a a wide variety of states whether or not they have their, their own goals and now I, I want to dig into the, the problem of curtailment that you just mentioned uh, in a bit. But uh, with regards to the penetration, so we've we've gone from, you know, if you rewound the clock 30 years, we would have said we would have 0% renewable energy on the grid, no, no solar, and probably very little wind. Um, and just, just kind of rewinding back that clock, um, I guess my question to you is, uh, you know, if you were to go talk to yourself when you started at PG&E or uh, started your career early on, are you surprised by the level of penetration that we have of renewables, you know, today? Or is it sort of followed a curve that is um, what what people expected? You know, it's funny. In 2007 and eight, we at AWEA worked with... Um, the Bush administration Department of Energy, Andy Karsner was Assistant Secretary of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. And we worked on a project we called 20% wind energy by 2030. So the goal was to get 20% of US electricity powered from wind by 2030. And at the time, we could not find any consultants willing to even work with us on that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> not to name names, but IHS Sierra <laughs> told us the maximum scenario we can look at is a 70 gigawatt wind scenario by 2030. And, you know, so here, here we are, we're talking in 2020 and we've got 50% more than the maximum scenario that, you know, the conventional consultants would even talk about. Actually, if you look where we are, we're right on that trajectory that um, wow. the industry worked on with, you know, a lot of input from some really smart NREL modelers. Uh, and so, you know, we're actually really following that tra- trajectory and, you know, now solar's, uh, got a, a similar goal and they're, they're on track and storage as well. So, um, in some ways I'm, I'm surprised, but in, in other ways I'm, I'm really not. I mean, there were very few people talking about that at that time and everybody else thought we were crazy. You know, we're, it, it, it was foreseeable, uh, if you just, you know, if you, if you looked at it. Yeah, I seem, I seem to remember around that time frame watching Bush give a speech talking about how oh, we were going to have these flexible fuel inputs and our cars were going to run on switchgrass and and all these you know sugar cane and all those things. Uh, it, it sounded pretty sci-fi to me. <laughs> um, let me ask you a question 
related to that, so, you know, that level of penetration, which, you know, from what I understand, I would agree, seems to have surprised a lot of people. What what drove the industry to be able to, uh, obviously, there were a lot of subsidies and that played no small role, but, you know, what allowed there to be such a great level of renewable energy penetration? Was it just pure technological advancement, uh, flexibility from the grid operators? I mean, if you had to break it down by the two or three most important things that maybe you, don't, you think people don't get, what, what, what would they be? There were a lot of factors. The manufacturers did a great job, I think, over the years, reducing the cost. And the way the costs really came down, and, you know, we're talking 70% decrease in the costs for wind and, you know, similar, even greater for 90% reduction in cost for solar PV. But in my view, it was the deployment that led to that because that led to, you know, private company innovations and manufacturing techniques and design changes. Of course, the wind turbine, you know, the towers and the blades got really big and long. You know, it, when I started in wind in 2000. Five, we only had four gigawatts installed and they couldn't figure out how to, you know, deliver the blades on trucks because, uh, you know, the, the <laughs> state, uh, you know, the state permits didn't allow that. And, you know, you look back and you're like, you know, at the time that seemed like, oh, yeah, what a barrier. Well, there's a, you know, there's a cap on the size of wind turbines. Of course, now, you know, they figure that out. They worked with the Department of Transportation or whatever. And now wind turbines are they're probably five times the size of what, the, what they were back then. So these things, yeah. they just take time to work through. You know, it's like anything. It just takes time banging on it and chipping away at various aspects of the of the problem. It's not like it's, you know, it's all in one, you know, government R&D shop where a brilliant scientist comes out with the solution in a beaker. It's it's just a lot of people all up and down the supply chain improving their their little corner of it. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's it, it's kind of like a flywheel effect, right? As you start to build and you have a business, you can invest in research and as technology improves, it just further drives that. And every time there's a problem, once you solve it, that's one less problem and it just allows the industry to grow. And looks like that's what's happened here because, you know, you're now, we're now talking about shutting down coal plants because, you know, renewables has reached a point where they, they can, they can match in terms of CapEx and cost and operating it, all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Introduce new problems, but you can start to move away from these large generation facilities. Yeah. And, you know, utilities, as you've mentioned, John, a couple of times here, uh, were always really in charge of their systems and they still mm -hmm. are. And they, you know, they were not the, generally the, the most excited to have this variable resource on their system with, you know, before there were even kind of interconnection standards on the various technical requirements. And so it was definitely a process of getting utilities more and more comfortable with it. And that, you know, there was feedback back to the manufacturers to design turbines that were, you know, more grid friendly uh, over the years. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've always spent a lot of time at this group called the Energy Systems Integration Group, um, where utilities gather the technical people with utilities to talk about their experiences integrating renewables. And I, I always learn a ton from them. And, um, you know, every year some other utility steps up and said, well, we, we solved that problem. Here's how we did it. All the other utilities are in there taking notes. And it's like, you know, there's, there's just, there's like no, no alternative to just trying things and, and learning, uh, from experiences along the way. Hmm. I'm very interested in, in putting together two things that you've shared with us, um, and kind of playing them off one another. So, on one hand, really, I think what, you, what you're saying has driven the adoption of this type of technology to this point is incredible technological improvements, which I would say everyone agrees on. You know, solar is now and, and wind are now out competing other sources of electricity on an unsubsidized basis, um, as you mentioned, having fallen 70% mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. On one hand, on the other hand, from what I understood, you you sort of indicated that you felt like the next wave of improvements to get us from teens penetration of electricity to 50% and then on to 100% was going to be largely driven from the demand side and rewriting the market rules. Um, 
So what makes, I guess, what is it that makes you feel that we, we as sort of people who are trying to participate in this green revolution should shift our attention from technical in, inputs and changes in the past to now more market-based and maybe pricing and rules-based to, to drive greater renewables adoption? Yeah, well, you know, of course, continued cost reductions always always help, but uh, I do think the the biggest challenges are in the grid and how you how do you put the whole system together, uh, how you match supply and demand, and how you deliver from remote areas. So, um, you know, I'm I'm thrilled to see all the new interest from various parties in that. I think a lot of people appreciate that that issue, and you know, some of the solutions are relatively well known by now. And so there's kind of a roadmap, but, um, you know, going from 10 to 20% penetration is one thing going to, you know, 20 to 30 is another. And, you know, when we get to 50 to 60, you know, it's, it gets, uh, the, the scope of the changes become greater and greater. Um, it's not that they're, you know, radical or infeasible. It's just that they're often very different from how we've been operating and, and changed, uh, can be hard sometimes. Yeah, on that point, Mr. John, you know, you're right when it comes to innovation and, and, and implementing, you know, vast amounts of change, transformational change can be very challenging. One thing that interests me, you know, having come from a, a background where I, I would go to large enterprises and convince them that they should move to the latest and greatest, you know, software technology platform or digital approach to doing things, you know, many times you want everyone to sort of shift, right? Lift and shift to the new to the new way of doing things. But very often it's very hard to do that. You have to actually build the new on top of the old. To some extent we're doing that, that that's happening here, right? You have a you have a grid that has been around as as we said for, you know, many years and the grid is more than just the physical infrastructure. It's all of the, you know, uh, economic structures, political structures, and technology infrastructure, and relationships, you know, across state, et cetera, that becomes the foundation for which you want to drive this transformation, right? So my question for you, Rob, is let's say we we had a clean slate and we, we, we had the opportunity to sort of reconstruct the U.S. grid from scratch. It was sort of a lift and shift. What, in your mind, what would that look like? Yeah, well, um, obviously we wouldn't have the uh, coal plants around or large carbon emitters. Um, um, you can go zero carbon, no carbon at all in your design. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it depends on what the public policy goal is, but um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming. Well, you get to choose. This is like your clean uh, slate, Rob, Rob's <laughs> <Yeah>. vision. <laughs> well, look, I, it, I, I think climate is a serious problem. I also think urban air pollution is a major public health uh, threat yes. that is people just live with it and, and accept it. Right. And, but it's actually solvable if you, you know, again, you can replace the, these kind of inserted in city, dirty plants that are usually way too close to people. And there's environmental justice and public health problems with, with that. And you can replace those plants with clean resources. Um, but you know, the wind and solar plants tend to be remote and real estate is a big uh, input cost to uh, renewable energy. And so the the uh, remote areas are cheaper real estate as well. Mm -hmm. um, so you could, you know, you could drive significant rural economic development by building just in incredible amounts of wind and solar uh, all over the country. Selective use of batteries, there's going to be a lot of role for storage. And then, uh, you know, I do think the grid, um, and uh, I, I guess I'm not one of these people who think like we, we don't need the, the grid anymore, like we could leapfrog that technology. I actually think the grid is going to be a key component. But, you know, that said, uh, the grid has uh, has plenty of natural barriers to its uh, its growth and, and development. So I, I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're going to need other other solutions, which, you know, we're going to need very active demand side. We're going to need to operate the grid a lot more efficiently. And so, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the, the system now. And I think we would also have these regional transmission organizations, kind of regional grid operators, regional air traffic controller types of entities. Um, so that would be my future is large regional markets with robust infrastructure and, um, you know, a dynamically operated system uh, mm. and, and dynamically 
operated supply and demand that you're, you know, you have levers on both ends of that pipe where you're, you're man actively managing both supply and demand because you mm -hmm. need to control them to keep them in balance. Got it. Interesting. So you would, so in your model, you'd, 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 you'd have uh, uh, zero carbon, you would stay with the, with the regional uh, transmission organizations or sort of regional power producer kind of model. And, um, I, I didn't hear you comment on, you, you said the grid would, the grid is important, but would you change the grid? Would it be this national, uh, national set of pipes or would it be more regional still? Yeah, I, I think it would be much more, you know, larger regional, inter-regional and national, mm -hmm. uh, in its, uh, in its operation. So it will, it would, right. uh, yeah, be much more. Maybe you have some national pipelines, if you will, some lines that go across the country. And that, that, that they're just providing a service to bring power to the regional areas, perhaps? Yeah, you know, think about, uh, you know, like 8 p.m. if the sun's still out in, in California, it can serve, right. you know, load in Georgia when it's yeah, dark. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty exciting. And if you had that signaling like you talked about, we would know where to send the power, right? You would say, you know, we've got this extra generation, let's move it down to this area because that's where it's needed the most right now or... The pricing model says it should go there, that sort of thing, and we can actually move the power there. That's right. Yeah. And it, 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 are, are batteries and storage part of that design? I'm just thinking about sort of all the technology and interesting developments we're seeing that could be incorporated into that. Yeah. I, I mean, batteries will serve a variety of purposes, right? Um, mm -hmm. These new lithium-ion batteries especially, but there's going to be other forms of storage as well, each filling their own niche. But like, you know, the way the system operates in Texas a lot of the time is uh, overnight, the wind is powering and charging up the batteries. And then, you know, the sun comes up and the PV plants are, are powering the system, serving load. Uh, then the sun goes down late afternoon and then the batteries kick in at that point and serve, you know, right. Another few hours of load uh, mm -hmm. before load dips down. Um, so you know, batteries are filling that that gap there and time shifting by a few hours. You know, they can also do. There's all like you know, short term frequency response and reliability products that they can provide. And there's also you can use batteries to uh, serve a transmission function. So for example, if a line goes out, if you have a battery at either end of that line, you can for even just for 10 or 15 minutes, if you dispatch that battery, you can cover yourself for enough time to redispatch generation in the area. So it essentially can be a, you know, a, a, a cheaper way to um, provide a, a, a contingency response or a, a backup service for transmission. So batteries are going to serve a lot of different purposes uh, at, at every okay. stage of the system. Right. And I imagine there'd be new technology to sort of manage the, the balance between, you know, load and consumption. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, power production and, and consumption. And and then also, um, we talk about sort of introducing this more dynamic load that can be turned on in the system where you sort of have an imbalance, where you don't have a Georgia to send it to, but you have sort of this dynamic buffering that can turn on and, and use it. Is that something you've considered before prior to us or, 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 or not you, but like sort of like the focus groups and, 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 the, and, and the power companies sort of considered that concept at all? I do not hear about it much at all. Yeah. I remember visiting the NREL, uh, the, the wind technology center. They have um, computer systems and I think they're, you know, they, they, it's a microgrid and they match their load and generation, but it's very rare. I really have not seen that in the market. I've, I've seen, you know, load essentially, you know, be where it is for whatever reason and, you know, sometimes become dynamic. And then, you know, to some extent I've seen uh, location flexible, you know, new uh, manufacturing or data center facilities go to places with uh, cheap power. And, you know, we've seen data centers in places with, um, you know, a lot of hydro or wind or places with cheap power. But I have not seen um, actual, you know, placement of load uh, and uh, dynamic operation of that load in order to kind of match the uh, resource availability, like renewable output. No, that's, uh, and, and we're finding that, you know, we're certainly bringing that innovation as we talk to people, but it's interesting to see how that 
could be part of a future future design. Yeah, and you know, just related to that, I mean, I, I've mentioned the grid, and you know, some of us in our wildest dreams would love to see a national grid, but the you know, the reality is there are all these barriers. So you know, we right. have a lot of renewable development going into areas that have great renewable resource air, uh, you know resource, you know, quality. So they're very cheap energy. And, you know, you get the tax credit. If it's, if it's wind, you get the production tax credit. And, you know, the, the more you produce, the more you get. So, you know, they want to be in the really, uh, ex, you know, best wind resource areas. Well, these happen to be the areas that are, you know, pretty disconnected from the grid and they're not able to deliver. And, um, you know, th- this happened before 10 or 15 years ago. And then we built out a lot of transmission in Texas and the um, South Central and Upper Midwest areas. Um, well, unfortunately, that transmission isn't really forthcoming right now. I mean, there's nothing in the can that's coming. So we're getting more and more generation in areas where there's not much delivery capacity coming out. And I think there's a lot of congestion and curtailment of the renewable projects there. So that's a, another need. If there are ways to bring load to that, you know, basically all that stranded generation, um, right. there's going exactly. to be, a, you know, a, a, I would think a huge uh, opportunity there. So I, I promised to bring us back to, you know, places outside of the U.S. and perhaps back to the African continent. Uh, and I wanted to turn it back over to Phil just to chat about that a bit. I guess my overarching question to set up the conversation is, you know, what blueprints or examples where things, you know, sort of grid design is working really well in the rest of the world can the U.S. learn from? And as we think about, you know, developing infrastructure, let's say, in Africa, where are sort of the great examples that, that we can point to? Are there any? Yeah, well, um, one thing I think about is um, greater use of uh, hydro in a portfolio. I mean, there's, you know, we have these limited um, sources of flexibility we've talked about. Again, the demand side could be a huge source of flexibility. We've not really seen anywhere vastly expand that, but we have seen um, some countries really use their hydro system for that so that when you don't have the wind and solar output, then you have all this water collecting behind a dam in a reservoir, and then you can right. store that, and then you can run it through the, the turbine and produce electricity yeah, produce yeah, mm-hmm. to fill in the gaps. And so that's a huge source of flexibility where you have reservoir hydro. Obviously, the opportunities for new large reservoir hydro are very limited, especially in this country. But um, you know, there are places, you mentioned Africa again, East Africa is a hydro-based system. Um, there's a few countries in South America that are hydro-based. Um, the, you know, Scandinavia and um, some of the Nordic countries uh, have a lot of hydro. So, um, you know, a lot of the success stories of high renewable energy penetration around the world are with, uh, you know, this big hydro battery sitting there that, didn't get a lot of attention, but, you know, it's it's there and the hydro has been there for a while. So people didn't really notice it, but they've, they're operating differently now in order to do that. So that's I just, you know, I think it's useful to think about uh, that vision because then then the, the question is, all right, well, hey, we'll we'll use our hydro that way. Uh, but B, you know, what else do we have? What other resource do we have? We can operate like that hydro plant, whether it's demand side response or, you know, just converting our our gas generation, which we have this massive fleet of gas generators around the country, you know, maybe they don't operate so much um, because they do emit some carbon. Um, But, you know, maybe some of them stick around just to, you know, be there to fill the gaps. Um, Or, you know, we have Actually, if you look at the North American grid, there's a tremendous amount of uh, reservoir capacity in uh, in Canada, in the east, the central, and the western parts, um, that if you linked it all up in a North American grid, you have this massive battery that it can, essentially can help balance the whole North American grid. Tacking on to that, I guess my question would be, um, so you, you have hydro, basically what you're saying is add uh, additional and and more flexible resources to the North American grid because that would let us be more responsive and less carbon intensive from a supply side. What other, I mean, you know, are there any other trends that you would add on to that, or any other things that you think that you wish the United States was paying more attention to 
with regards to updating its its grid. Uh, you know, a couple examples that come to mind might be changes in subsidies or investment in green hydrogen. I don't know if there's any other trends that are sort of of interest to you or you think maybe are missed opportunities for the U.S.? Yeah, well, I'm, so, you know, I do think hydrogen's an opportunity to, to utilize the uh, re- renewable output. Uh, I also think, um, you know, electrification, we didn't talk about much, but, you know, when we get cars and trucks on, a, on electric uh, power um, and, uh, and start replacing, you know, home and building heating, with uh, heat pumps and, and electricity, then uh, a we've got a whole lot more demand for electricity, but also you know that creates you know different ways we need to operate for that. But I, I guess the the thing you asked me what I personally focused on, I've been super intrigued with um, these set of technologies that squeeze more out of the existing wires. I just think it's incredibly efficient way to uh, operate the grid and given the challenges of building new wires um, I, it's it's just such a no-brainer to me one of them is dynamic line ratings and this one's easy to understand because you know when the wind is blowing the uh, uh, spinning the turbines and producing wind electricity uh, that same wind is cooling all the transmission lines in that area and when the lines get cooled they can deliver more power so if we would operate that way um, you know it's equally reliable it's you know protects the equipment but that's called dynamic line rating because you're changing the rating of the line based on the weather conditions we could get you know often you know 20 30 percent more uh, energy delivery over the same line so that's that's that's, uh that's really intriguing and then um there's power flow control we can do a lot more now with actually rerouting the power to send it you know push it or pull it over different lines that may be congested or may have uh, spare capacity that could be used uh and then we can also just you know we can use software to figure out the optimal configuration so that we're not just taking lines in and out of service uh, based on convenience but we're actually looking at the effect on delivery of power and, and congestion. So uh, there are these ways that um, have never really been in the utilities interest to pursue because utilities make their money on uh, returns on large capital investments. So that, you know, the more capital, the better. But, um, you know, hopefully regulators will look at that and utilities will, you know, kind of do the right thing to um, squeeze more efficiencies out of the out of the system. It's, it's especially important for clean energy. And if we look forward over the next five to 10 years, what do you think the the most important things that need to change about our current system are? Uh, and are you, do you consider yourself an optimist uh, with regards to, you know, reaching a better, less carbon intensive state or, um, you know, what is your outlook and prognosis? Yeah, I think we can do this with, with, uh, the right kind of national consensus, which is why I spend a lot of time trying to talk with, you know, governors and policymakers, uh, and, you know, help, you know, work with coalitions that are trying to do that. You know, we, we kind of need that, that support. Um, and when we get kind of regional agreements to do things, we've been able to do it and we need regional agreements and national agreements to make some of these grid changes. So, um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll do that. It really requires, I think, policymakers to to recognize the importance of the of the grid um, to make everything work. I was encouraged to see the you know the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, the staff majority report, came out with all these grid recommendations. They advocated a national supergrid. Um, so that's you know that's really helpful. Um, you know we've. The Midwestern governors have written letters advocating for building out their Midwest regional grid. So those types of things, when when that type of thing happens, then, then um, you know, electric companies and regulators can figure out how to get it done. Well, fantastic, Rob. This has been uh, fascinating. You you uh, you definitely know your stuff. I, I've learned so much just on this on this conversation than I have either reading or talking to folks in the industry. It uh, looks like there's a lot of room ahead for innovation in the space. And I look forward to seeing you continuing to lead that effort 
in the U.S. and perhaps beyond as we, we start to see all of this pretty significant in investment in infrastructure, uh, renewable inf infrastructure with the current pandemic and its effects on, on the global economy. Thanks for taking the time and look forward to seeing you in person at, at some point. Yeah, it was great to great to be with you. Enjoy the discussion. Really love what you guys are doing. And again, you know, your uh, your innovation kind of matching generation and load, not just by location, but by time of day, I think it'll be, uh, you know, it could be a, a real game changer. So I'm always interested in new new approaches to this uh to these challenges. And uh, so it was great to get to know you guys over the last couple months. Thanks a lot, Rob. Good. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can find more information on what you've heard today in our show notes. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our corporate page. Or tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Holdings. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at salunacomputing.com and visit our blog clean integration on Medium. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and others to find us. Thank you for listening to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. And remember, computing is a better battery. See you next time.